I like being in a state of surprise every time I put down a piece of text, a line of dialogue. I like and enjoy and savor the next, the, you know, what my characters do. It makes me feel like, what are you going to do next? Um, it makes me feel um, delighted, delighted to discover what the next line is going to be. And that's the kind of place I want to be in. Even if the play is dark, even, you know, there's always surprises. Welcome to CalArts Center for New Performance, where we follow the artist. Our podcast is a place where visionary artists lead us into creative dialogue and discuss generous acts of world-making. I'm your host, Marissa Chibas, speaking to you from our home at California Institute of the Arts, where for almost five decades, a community of artists has come together to break ground and break bread while pushing the limits of artistic practice. Today we join a conversation between prominent American playwright Octavio Solis and Chi Wong Yang, Associate Artistic Director of CNP and an acting professor in the School of Theatre. The two sat down together, taking a break during workshop rehearsals for their current collaboration, Scene with Cranes, a new play commissioned and produced by CNP. Octavio Solis writes plays that are rooted in Mexican-American culture and community, told in richly poetic language that has earned him the Penn Center USA Award for Drama, a United States Artist Fellowship, and the Distinguished Achievement in the American Theater Award from the William Inge Center for the Arts, among many other accolades. As they discuss their creative process for Scene with Cranes, their conversation touches upon the music of Jean Sibelius, and the unarticulated grief of our nation, as well as Octavio's early days in writing workshops with Marie-Irene Fornes, staging plays in bars in the late 80s, falling for San Francisco, and why he sharpens his pencils before sitting down at his computer to write. Okay, all right. All right. Um, I've never actually recorded a podcast before, so I'm like, okay, well, this is interesting. <laughs> um Octavio, thank you so much for being here and doing for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure, Chi Wong. It's really my pleasure. So, uh, just to let the listeners know, um, today we we just wrapped up a three week workshop um, working on your new play, Scene with Cranes, here at Cal Arts and the Center for New Performance, um, or CNP as we call it. And um, and I was thinking back, this process has been a pretty long journey so far. But this started even two, two years ago. Two years ago. Yes, this all started with Mar Marissa Chivas. Uh, she wanted to commission me to write something for Duende Arts at, uh, here at Cal Arts, And I'd always had this idea to write this piece that was based on a piece of music that I had been haunted by for so long. The piece was called Scene with Cranes. It was written by John Sibelius um, near the turn of the century, 19th century, that is. And um, <clears throat> it had originally been written for another play written by his brother-in-law. The play had, uh, was called Death. Um, I uh, learned that Sibelius withdrew those pieces once the play closed. It didn't run for very long. And he reformed them and joined two, two of them together to, to make scene with cranes. Um, and... Uh, and that became an opus of his own. 
it's a seven minute piece of music, but every time I play it, I just I'm transported, and and I see these like snapshot images that are very different from the cranes that are evoked in the music. So I thought I should write that play, um, and I did. Um, and um, when I wrote it, submitted it, they asked if I wanted to come and do a workshop. I said, yes, uh, but rather than work with the director, let me do the first workshop so I can work out some things uh, in the writing by working directly with the students. And they gave me those uh, that, that uh, two-week period. It was really productive. I went home and I rewrote the work some more. And we're, we were going to uh, workshop it again and produce it with you, Chi Wang, as, as, at the helm. But the pandemic hit. Mm-hmm. And so everything went on hold for almost two years. But here it is. The pandemic is still with us. But somehow we are opening up the doors again and finding ways to continue developing and uh, producing theater. I mean, we're we're coming hot off of this workshop, and personally, for me, I'm still kind of you know kind of letting the ideas settle in my brain. But I'd love to hear you talk about what this um, uh, workshopping process has been like. And you know, as a director, it's been a real gift for me because um, when I was invited to direct this through CMP, you know, one of the um, uh, kind of values of CMP is to step outside of maybe some of the constraints of a really kind of um, uh, aggressive, results-oriented rehearsal process, and to actually give space to the artists, and it's it's one of the uh, kind of central uh, tenets of what we do here at CNP, which is not only to center the artist, but the way that we t- like to talk about it is to is to follow the artist. Yeah. Um, and as a director, that was a real gift to have time to not just go right into kind of you know the pressure cooker of making a show that's going to you know open in, in a few weeks. Um, and to really have a process with the actors yeah. and of course with you. Um, yeah. So I'd love to hear just for you as a writer, how was it jumping into this room, working with these actors with this new script? Uh, well, Chi Wang, oh. primarily I consider myself a language writer. I hear the play, I hear the scenes, I hear the characters before I see them. And hearing their voices gives me an image of them. But I hear their cadences, I hear the rhythm of the play. It's almost like I'm listening to a radio play when I'm writing. And, uh, and, and when I'm typing uh, the text down, I'm often saying the lines of the characters. So for me, I receive the play orally. To me, there's an oral kind of expectation of how the play sounds. Um, and I have not traditionally concerned myself with the, the physical, with, with the space, with the, the shape and, and uh, silhouettes of the characters the textures, um, until much later. In this case, I had the play, but we came, instead of to workshop the play itself, we workshop the situation of the play, the conditions in which these people are living. And that was different, because that, that meant then that you were free to explore how a character, uh, what, what is a character's chief gesture, what, how, how do they move, how do they how do they respond to tragedy how how do they respond to joy what makes them happy and and uh, and who are they threatened by who do they connect to in the room and seeing all that played out uh really made me happy because then i was really inspired by watching that 
and comparing it to my text and seeing how what I was seeing up there could affect some kind of change on the text because this text is different. I mean, one of the things that first struck me when I when I read the the script was was that the world is is so much a world in transition and in transformation, and that it starts um, in a very intimate kind of place of transformation, transformation between um, uh, the relationship of a, a mother to her daughter, a son to his parents, um, and then it starts to expand out, and it becomes the the story is is also about a transformation of generations and the, the powers, the histories, the traumas, and the aspirations between uh, the, the generations. And as it keeps growing, we are also seeing that even, uh, it's even larger, it's, it's, a, it's a transformation happening amongst the community uh, uh, across the urban landscape, the gentrification. Um, and to me, it, it's such a, it's not just a, such a distinctly American um, drama and tragedy, but there are definitely these echoes of the Greek tragedy oh. in there as well. Do you consider this uh, um, an, ad an adaptation of, of any sort? Or um, what's the role of uh, when you're kind of working um, to adaptation or to the sort of like source original material? Like, for example, um, you know, it seems like the, the germ of this play, you know, came from this Sibelius piece. And so, yeah. you know, how, how, do, how do you move from uh, kind of these original inspirations or sources and, and let them kind of evolve and, and grow? Uh, well, I have to find my engagement in it. I have to find where do I fit in? How is this about me? Mm -hmm. So I was listening to Sibelius and seeing an, in my head a news report, a live TV feed of families in grief. Um, Mexican women crying, held back by the yellow tape at night, and the cameras glaring at them uh, because of someone's passing, a violent passing. Um, and I said, "How can? How, what do these have to do with each other?" And then I started to sort of uh, get more kind of snapshots, postcard pictures from the play, and I started seeing the characters. And I said, "All right, well, this is a way in." This, uh, it's, it's only after I've written it that I feel like there's a little bit of, of Hecuba in, um, in Lourdes. There's some, something queenly about her, and, uh, but a destroyed queen, a queen laid low. And, uh, and, um, and something about her husband, Ramiro, that uh, evokes Priam for me, uh, who was also laid low, killed. Um, and and they're both undergoing uh, terrible uh, suffering um, in this house because of the death of, of of their boy. So there's a little bit of Hecuba in 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 uh, a little bit of Trojan women in in this in Lourdes, but I'm not I'm not looking I'm not I'm not reading Trojan women. Um, I'm listening only to seeing. Uh, seen uh, with cranes. Mm. Um, is is there a sort of a, a quote unquote standard writing process for 
for you, Octavio? <laughs> oh man, that varies. Uh, that varies. You know, I like to sort of say, and I, I I tell my students this, that I first have to be in a quiet, peaceful, relaxed state of mind, away from uh, everything, away from the distractions, away from the internet, especially and my phone, where I can focus and just get started. I have my work resistances that I that I deal with, like I have to sharpen all my pencils, even though I'm probably typing. I have to empty the trash. Um, I have to go to the bathroom. You know, my, when I go to the bathroom, make sure I have a glass of water or my cup of coffee, or if I'm working at night, uh, my glass of bourbon. Um, uh, and then um, f- maybe maybe send a few quick emails, and then get started. It's, it's just you know it's it's so hard to just kind of come in, sit down, focus, and start. I have this routine. Uh, I call them work resist- resistances um, because they are. They're kind of things that get in the way. But there's like, I'm, I'm getting there. My, my head is getting there. It's like clearing your desk before you get started. Those are some of the things. And then, you know, I uh, go to a place in my head where I see these people in a real place. And, uh, and either I've been seeing them already and they've been calling for me for several months to come on, write this play. And so I see them already, and I don't have to go very far to imagine exactly where they are. Um, and then I start writing. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, I do uh, not read what I've written um, until I'm done with that day's writing. I don't go back and read anything until I'm done. Then I'll go back and go, oh, okay. Um, and usually the first couple of paragraphs or, or the first scene, the first lines are terrible. But I go, eh, it's okay. I'll go back and fix them later. That's the editing. And that comes, that comes much later. Um, so that's kind, of, that's kind of how I get started. Mm. Yeah, in a previous talk, I, you were, you, you, with one, some of our students, you were, you were talking about um, in your process how you don't really kind of strategically outline or that it's not, your process is not kind of formulaic oh, in, in no. how you build out a script. Could you, could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, it's real hard to make uh, characters out of a formula because then they start being, uh, they start serving the needs of the outline uh, rather than the needs of, of their character, their own personal needs. It's very important that my characters all have agency, that they have uh, an opinion uh, about what they say and and a way to do it, and that uh, and that that they're not uh, obligated to me, the writer, in any way. Uh, they have to act out of their own um, out of their own needs, um, and that keeps it forward. Um, but sometimes they'll talk in circles. They'll talk in circles for like three, four, five pages, and they'll go, "Okay, someone's got to bang their head through the wall." Until uh, they we hit step B, you know, because they're all saying, you know, the same thing over and over, uh, and they're in a rut, um, and that's okay too because that's part of the writing process, trying to figure out, okay, I'm writing but spinning my wheels. That's how do I get out of this? Um, the, um, um, but giving the characters agency means that you think of them as real people. 
and you think of where they are as a real place. And I ask my students when they're writing, don't set this on a stage. Don't say stage left is a doorway, stage right is this, the audience is over here. That Don't go there at all. If it's a house, see a real house. See all four walls or five walls. Walk upstairs. Go into the attic. You didn't know there was an attic? There's an attic. And maybe there's a basement. What's in the basement? Maybe you'll find some things that you are going to be important in the play. But really, really see this as a place with, a, with, with its own integrity. A real place with real sunlight coming in. And people coming in who are real to themselves. They can't see you. They don't know you're there at all. But they're real to each other. Um, because if you do it the other way, um, then you really, your play is taking place on a set. And your characters are actors. And the thing about actors is they know it's a play. And they, they are aware that there's an audience listening, watching. And if they are aware of that, they're not going to be themselves. They're going to modify their behavior. They're going to censor themselves. And they're going to be good people instead of who they are. It's, uh, so I always say, don't, don't set it on a stage. I don't want to see any other, anyone on, in that scene except the people that are there. And then watch how the world opens up. Watch. Um, I like being in a state of surprise every time I put down a piece of text, a, piece, a line of dialogue. I like uh, and enjoy and savor the next, the, you know, what my characters do. It makes me feel like, what are you going to do next? Um, it makes me feel um, delighted, delighted to discover what the next line is going to be. And that's the kind of place I want to be in. Even if the place is dark, and, you know, there's always surprises. And sometimes surprises can happen scene by scene. Um, I'll write one version of the scene. After a while, it doesn't seem like the right scene. So I'll say, let me introduce those characters to each other again. Let them see, let me see what new scene they can, they can show me. How, what... what if I just really, truly let them go, how will they act this time? And they'll surprise me. One of the real pleasures has been having you in the rehearsal room and just being kind of a little bit of a fly on the wall of your writing process. <laughs> and something that I've, I've really admired is um, the collaborative spirit you bring to the work. And, you know, as, as you were talking about your process, it, it just made me think that, yeah, I see you collaborating with the characters. I, you know, in, in when you were, you know, when we've been into this, a little bit of this kind of revision process, you know, I, I really noticed it. You, you wouldn't really come into the room saying, this is what I want to have happen in the play. You really come in thinking about, well, what is this character? What's been, what's been happening in their life? Uh, what would lead them to this thing? And uh, so it really feels like there's not only this, this a beautiful company of eight actors in the room, but there's this whole other company of eight characters that you know you're collaborating collaborating with in real time. Oh yeah, it's nice to sort of see them in three D instead of only in my head or on a page. Um, 
it's nice sort of seeing them and feeling like, okay, now I know what that character looks like. I see how that character walks. I see how that character regards the other one. I see how she reacts. Now, how can the text accommodate that? Um, a, a, a play is a very pliable, porous thing. It has to be. Uh, or else um, it's dead. So it has to operate a little like a sponge, something alive in the water. Uh, has to be able to absorb all the artistic um, ideas from designers, producers, actors, dramaturgs, directors, and maybe even other writers. It has to be able to absorb that. And when it can't absorb, it'll, it'll jettison. But it should be porous enough to assume that and still maintain its integrity, still maintain its shape. Um, at the same time, though, it has to be pliable. It has to be able to mold and shape itself to the needs of, uh, of the company. And um, especially when the play is still finding itself. Then I go, okay, okay, I, I know something I can go. I, they just showed me a direction I could go that I didn't know was there. They just opened a new door in the house that I, to, to a room I didn't know was there. Let's see what happens when we go there. Mm. Um, are, are you someone who feels like um, uh, uh, your work comes from a necessity? Like that this work is necessary right now? Well, it's all necessary, you know. Um, uh, I've written things that I feel are whimsy and um, I do them for myself or, you know, to have fun. But... Um, but this pandemic has made art really necessary. Um, and I think this play reflects um, the, this, I, th I think the, un the really unacknowledged grief that I think the world is undergoing. Uh, it just hasn't really, hasn't really stopped to take it in. How many people have died in the world because of COVID? How, how many how our world has changed because of COVID, um, how it's changed the way we function with each other. Um, I, I, I don't know that we're grieving. Uh, we're angry. Nobody wants to wear these masks, but it's necessary. Right now, it's necessary. But I don't want to wear it. I, you know, nobody wants to wear it. But we have to. And that's part of the thing that I think we feel angry about. But the grief isn't, I don't think it's really acknowledged yet. Uh, not, not as it is it, uh, in a, on a global, in a global sense. I know there's, there's mourning happening for a lot of people who've lost loved ones and who've lost their livelihood, who've lost businesses and, and lost their theater. Um, but I think that it's still sort of still just below the surface and I think it's going to come up um, and I think this play reflects that um, I, 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 I didn't feel like a comedy was was coming for me and that might be the next great you know movement the, the next place we go to 
in, in our writing for the theater. Um, but I'm in a place where I st- I'm still dealing with, with death, with death of, um, and the impending death. Because I had COVID, and it was bad, and I scared my wife. Um, I scared myself. It was, I was really sick. Um, and since then, um, you know, I've had several friends who have committed suicide. I've had friends who are, like, dealing with, with illness, like cancer, and it's been, um, it's been very hard to sort of absorb all these things, and and I'm channeling then a lot of that into into this work, because and I'm still I still don't have it worded yet right, like what grief is and what grief does, um, and uh, so I'm going to be constantly searching for that for the right words. Maybe it isn't even words. Maybe it's something else. Um, but uh, but I think we're all dealing with a place quietly dealing with our mourning. Mm. But loss is loss, and uh, and and before the world can change, they have to deal with the loss, and they have to ask those questions, like who, and why, why. And I, I think that's. That's sort of where we're at right now. We have, we're digging into that place where we're asking why, why, um, and even bigger questions like why is art necessary? We sure needed it, man. You know, something I wanted to ask you about was um, just to kind of go back into your 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 history as a writer. Is that um, did you? Is it correct that you first started writing when you were in Dallas? I really sort of decided I was a playwright finally in Dallas. Mm-hmm. Um, I had been uh, a student at Dallas Theater Center where they had the graduate program for Trinity University. And after three years there, I graduated and I was free. Um, but I, was, I wasn't ready to move to New York yet to go pound the sidewalk, so to speak. So I needed jobs. And I got a bartending job, you know, two nights a week. And then I got a teaching job at the Arts Magnet High School at Booker T. Washington, one of the first magnet schools in, in, the, in the country. And uh, I taught playwriting. They wanted me to be a playwriting teacher. And I told the principal, I'm an actor. He says, well, you come highly recommended by, from, by your playwriting teacher. I went, mm, okay. So I decided to, you know, take the job. It was four hours a day. And then at night, I could do my theater thing. Um, well, I started finding out that, you know, these students were really good. They started producing real plays. They were playing hooky from other classes to come and write in my room uh, and hang out and write after school. Something was happening that was good, and it was because of me. And I said, maybe I'm a writer, too. Um, I started writing plays to kind of cast myself because I found the job at another uh, bar called the 500 Cafe, which is kind of a new wave bar. And uh, I saw that Wednesday nights, the, the stage was empty. There was nobody there. And I asked my boss, hey, can I have that? And he said, sure, but I'm not paying for it. I'm not paying anybody. It's okay, I'll pay him. And I started a poetry reading series. And I knew poets, good poets, that had chapbooks and were published. 
I set a table where they could bring their books and we could sell them. Um, my manager did say they can have an open bar. And a lot of them said, we'll do it just for that. <laughs> um, but I paid them out of my pocket 20 bucks. You know, 20 bucks to read for half an hour. Um, and, and then another poet would read in the next half hour uh, or 40 minutes. And then I started saying, well, maybe we can have an, a performer, you know, guitarist come and play in between the two poets. I paid him to. And then I started thinking, maybe I should write some plays for the next Wednesday. For, you know, because it would only happen on Wednesdays. It was, it was called Words on Wednesday. And uh, so I started writing these funky um, verse plays because it was poetry. Um, and so I said, I have to write poetry and songs and all that. And we had so much fun. I love that this 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 started at, at not uh, the the theater space, you know, the formal theater space, but at the bar. At the bar. Yeah. What, and, what was the what was the vibe like of of these early shows? Well, I knew I knew my audience. They were art artists from the area and um, um, painters and uh, clubbers and club people, you know, and the occasional real drunk, and uh, but often young. Because they they were attracted to it because of the bands that played, so um, they started coming. They started coming in droves. First, the first time I did it, Words on Wednesdays, I had like ten people. By the time I did my play, which was six weeks later, and it was only on for one night, uh, it was full, like sixty, seventy people, standing room only. Uh, eventually, we had to move them outside. Um, but I, I, did, I started doing a saga. I did 10 plays, and I called it the Geometricia Saga. And uh, it was a blast writing for them. And it was really intended to showcase my acting. I played a character named Rigor Morgan. Rigor Morgan? Yes. And I was not a symbol for death. I said, I'm a symbol for microwave ovens. Whatever that means. And I had my trusty assistant. Her name was Corpus Christi. And we were like real hipsters, you know. And uh, but the main character was Geometricia, and the play all was always about her adventures. And uh, I'd write a new one every six weeks, and then we'd rehearse it, you know, three four days, and then we put it on off book. I staged it very quickly because it's a small stage for like a band, uh, and we used you know around we went around the tables where the people were drinking. Um, some people said, hey, can, can, can you write me a scene? And, you know, she, she was a dancer, so I said, oh, I'm going to write a ballerina segment where a ballerina just comes on and does a, a dance. And uh, this, these guys said, hey, can we compose or write music for you? I said, yeah. And so they started getting involved after the first one, and they became the house band for the, the thing. And I collaborated with them on writing songs, and they were superb. They also provided us with rehearsal space at the warehouse they were squatting at. And um, it was a magical time. I didn't know anything about playwriting, really. Um, I was making all kinds of mistakes, beautiful mistakes, because I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. And that was so freeing. Now I know all these rules and things about what's allowed and what's not, and it's, uh, I wish I was that innocent again. Um, because the plays had a kind of special quality to them that the community loved. And 
so many people saw them. Every six Wednesday there was a new one. I did ten of them, and uh, but I'll never share them with anyone because <laughs> I, I I look at them now and I go, these are from the mind of a twenty-one-year-old kid. You know, I was older, but but it's, it feels they feel so young and naive, but still so sunny and 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 full of spirit, full of spunk, and um, they're precious to me, very precious documents to me. But I, I'll never let them be staged. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that launched my playwriting career. When was your first commission as a playwright? My first commission as a playwright was my first, also my first play about my culture, my first Latino play. And it happened uh, shortly after those plays. I would say it happened around 88, 1988. Um, Cora Cardona uh, and was the artistic director of her company, uh, Teatro Dallas. And she said, write us a play. Write us a play. Uh, I said, oh, okay, good, how much? And she said, you come up with a figure. I said, $1,000? She and the person who works at Parks and Rec, because the, the play was in a building at, the, at a park, they looked at each other and then they looked at me and said, we can do that. And I didn't know I was really lowballing myself. <laughs> he said, thousand dollars, we can do that. So I thought, wow, thousand dollars to write a play. In 1988, that went a long way for me. Um, they did put some rules down. Here's the other thing that was amazing about Teatro Dallas. I didn't know there were other Latino actors. I didn't know there were Latino plays. I didn't know there were act directors who were could direct plays about my culture. I didn't know that ex existed until then. I didn't know about Luis Valdez. It was a big hole in my education. Um, but then she said, write something about your culture. I said, okay, it has to be about Day of the Dead, and it has to have Don Juan. In other words, write me a Don Juan play, set it during Day of the Dead. And I went, oh dear, um, oh, okay, okay. Um, I didn't know anything about Don Juan, anything except, you know, Latin love or whatever. So I did some research. I read all these works. Um, El, uh, El Burlador de Seville, The Trickster Seville was the very first one. Tiburcio um, Vasquez. Um, there's a Don Juan Tenorio that was written in Mexico, the next big one. Uh, oh, Mozart had a crack at it. Don Giovanni is... Uh, Don Juan. Man and Superman is a Don Juan play. John Tanner is Juan Tenorio. Um, uh, even Moliere did one. I think it's called The Stone Guest or Stone Feast or something like that. Um, anyway, I, I read all these works. And, uh, and they were wonderful, but I said they're missing something, especially if I'm going to bring in Day of the Dead. i got to have a kind of almost a commedia spirit to this. So I had just studied Commedia, and I knew about the father, you know, who was uh, always blustery and watching out for his daughter. The daughter's cute and pretty and oh, innocent. Um, there's a trickster, who's Don Juan? And then there's his, uh, his henchman or his best friend, Fracas, who is the narrator of the story. And... Uh, 
and it was it worked the play worked and I did it and they produced it and I was really happy with it SER got wind of it and they had it at their Saskatchewan produced it at their reading series and at the end of the reading they said oh, we're going to do it we'll produce it and they did the following year that was 1990 mm. did you talk about what that what that meant for you to to have that that kind of that kind of kind of realization that there were that there were latino theaters that there were latino actors and communities and chicano actors and theaters that you, that 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 you could write for and write with i think it made me realize who i was i think prior to that i thought i was white i think prior to that i was trying to fit in to a very white world and when i saw someone else it was like looking in a mirror some other latino was an actor i and wanted to do my plays i realized i know who i am now so i haven't looked back all my plays have are written for latino companies and latino actors and have a latino aesthetic that is unique to me but also there are things that are shared with other latinos especially the the, the mexican american latinos that we all kind of share in common. We're all so very different. But there's similarities. And um, but it's uh, seeing that, seeing them, seeing this company made me realize who I really was and what a sham I was before. Try as I was, I just said they will never let me fit in. Um, and I didn't have to fit in. Once I once I was my once I once I accepted myself, once I put on and realized the skin that is me, then the other theaters wanted me for that. They wanted me more. They didn't want me because it was, was I wrote white plays, you know, for white actors. They wanted me because I wrote plays about my culture, because of who I was. And that was a revelation. That was a real revelation for me. Um... So I'm grateful for those companies that opened their doors to me, the big lord houses that uh, have let me in and invited me and um, let me make a home there. Um, I think of the Magic Theater. I think of South Coast Repertory. I think of Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I think of Denver Center. These are places that have opened up their home. And then there's other places that are all, they were always home, like Intar. Uh, and um, in San Francisco, um, the now completely altered intersection for the arts. Well, I, I, I'm so curious. I wanted to hear about that. Um, what was it like when you moved to San Francisco, and how did that um, kind of? How did you meet the folks at Intersection for the Arts? Well, you know, um, I one of my best friends moved there. He and his wife moved there, and she's an actor who was in the same program. Uh, that I was in in Dallas. They moved to San Francisco, and while I was still in Dallas, they coaxed me, come visit. You'll love it here. Come, come. So I scrunched my money and, and saved up and bought a ticket. Then I met my future wife, his girlfriend. We started dating. And I said, I have to go on this trip. And I said, it's okay, it's okay. So I went and flew and stayed with them and had a blast. Uh, saw some wild-ass theater. There was a... 
uh, a group called Dude Theater, and they were just doing, I mean, they would drink like two six-packs each before they started rehearsal. And uh, they were doing some wild theater. Um, and uh, But there was incredible theater going on everywhere. I was there for a week, I think, having a great time. And when I came back, I told my wife, um, baby, baby, don't get hooked on me because I'm moving to San Francisco. And she said, when do we go? And I went, oh, great. That's not exactly what I wanted to hear. Um, and so we moved in 19, uh, late 89, early 1990. And as soon as I arrived, uh, my friends had told uh, the people that do theater about me. I got I had already known some of them, and one of them, uh, one of the people from Do Theater, was a theater director at uh, Intersection for the Arts. Um, and he said, "Hey, I understand you're in town. Write me a play." I said, "Okay." Uh, goes up in six months. What? He's <laughs> like, I haven't even written it yet. He says, "Yeah, it goes up in six months." Oh, okay. And then at the same time, the Magic Theater called. Eugenie Chan called me from there. She was the uh, literary manager and working for John Lyon. And she said, John really likes your work. I really love your work. Can we do Men of the Flesh? And I said, sure. So within six, eight months, I had two plays running simultaneously at, uh, in San Francisco. So I said, yes, this is home. I'm here. And... Um, but I really felt more at home uh, at Intersection because they were ready to do anything I wrote, anything. They were so hungry. And then they had an in-house company called Camposanto, and they really launched their company with the production of my play Santos and Santos. Um, and it's from that launching of, of that play that they said, let's form a company. So it kind of became their original uh, production. Um, since I think I wrote five, six plays for them since. And, you know, I was working in this little garage theater with like almost no budget at all. And we were making incredible magic at the same time that I was working in the Lord Theater world. I liked the idea of be, being comfortable in storefront theaters and also in these big houses where they could do my plays, big with huge budgets, 500-seat houses. You know, that's, I'm, you know, clearly I was comfortable in that. Um, and it's also because I have, you know, kind of a, I have a big telescope that I work with. I work on a big canvas. And I'm surprised that even in intersection, this teeny space, that those big story, big canvas stories work just as well. Sometimes better. Better. Mm. Why? Um, because it makes the audience work. And it, uh, um, you can't have, especially in, in a play that's going to be shifting from one scene to another scene uh, and be episodic in that way, um, you can't have too much of a, of a big set. You have to have the very single one thing that says this is an office and that's a house and a single thing that says that's a parking lot and this is the desert you know and sometimes it's just lighting it's just light and that audience is so well trained at intersection 
that they were like going, okay, now I'm here. All right, I'm not lost. Oh, here. I'm not lost. Okay. They could turn from, pivot from scene to scene and never be confused, never get lost. And that was really kind of special. They could do that there. Yeah, it almost seems like there's a kind of um, heightened kind of imagination and vulnerability uh, in, that, in that kind of smaller space where you can't really, you're not really tricking anybody. It's it's really happening through a through a, a shared kind of a imagination, a shared willingness to to be there in that moment. Yeah, you uh, you studied playwriting with uh, Maria Irene Fornes, right? I did. Um, uh, I studied with her at Intar when she had the Hispanic Playwrights Project. I think Playwrights Lab. I think that's what it's called. The lab. We all called it that. And um, and we'd meet there uh, every morning, like at nine o'clock, and we would do warm-ups. Uh, she had a huge room to work with, with the tables, uh, long white tables, already in a circle to accommodate her and maybe eight more people, maybe ten at the most. And um, that was on that was already set up on one side, but then there was this other side, this other area next to it, that had huge um, rugs, Persian rugs, uh, set out, and um, and she led us through warm-ups. We did stretches and warm-ups, and lying down and doing like holding like this for a long time, mm-hmm. and like this holding our our. Are, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm talking as if they can see. <laughs> We'd be doing stretches and lying down and breathing exercises. And sometimes, you know, I could hear snoring. Somebody would be like falling asleep. And she never complained about that. In fact, she said that it's actually encouraged because it means if you're yawning while you're working, it means you're in that dream state. You're in that space between dreaming and waking where you're available for things to happen. You're not uh, super alert and ready and on the balls of your feet. Uh, but neither are you completely on, on, uh, on your heels. You're somewhere in that liminal space already. And uh, so she would lead us for almost half an hour with exercises like that. And then uh, we'd be at the table and then we would start our visualization exercises where she asked us, she would ask us to close our eyes and then take us through a journey. And then we'd see something and then she'd say, begin writing, and we'd write for an hour, maybe an hour. Um, And then we'd take a break and then we'd come and we'd share what we read. Every day, it was like that. It was a routine, just like that. Uh, There was no expectation. You didn't have to write a play. Um, In the end, I think we did, I did, my play was terrible, I, I, uh, but, it, but it's all right because I learned what I, who, what I, how to apply the pedagogy that she used to me in a very specific way. Um, and I think that's what I needed. She asked me if I wanted to come the next year and do it again. Just She was going to offer it, I think, for free. And I said, mm, Irene, I'm going to pass. Uh, and she was, seemed really surprised and taken aback. Uh, like, you didn't like this? And I said, you know, no, I loved it. I loved it. Don't get me wrong. I love these exercises. I've learned so much from you. But um, 
but now I have to go home and apply that. Now I have to, my wife is waiting for me at home. I have to go, I have to go home and work on that and work in the world. But I will take your lessons with me. And she said, okay. And we became really good friends. We chat on the phone. Uh, when she came to San Francisco, she'd visit. Uh, if she had a reading or something, um, I'd drive her around, take her out. Um, the last time, uh, one of the last times I saw her was at uh, a TCG conference in Seattle. And then, the, and, but the really last time I saw her was when I say goodbye to her, or when she was uh, in her waning years uh, uh, dealing with Alzheimer's. And um, it was very moving to come in and just sit down with her. Uh, she had her eyes closed, but she seemed to hear me. And I just uh, laid my hand on hers and held her for a while. And then I took a picture of her hands. Didn't want to take a picture of her. I thought that would be disrespectful. But of her hands, because her hands were really special. And, um, and that's it. And I kept that to myself. I went there when... I knew, she, you know, she would be available, um, and um, and that was, you know, my my own personal quiet visit with Irene. Uh, a lot of people have had had done that pilgrimage, had come from all over the country to visit her, because she really connected to them deeply, um, and we're all acolytes of her. Uh, still, I feel like an acolyte of her. Mm. Do, do you does um, has that time influenced you now as a, as a teacher yourself? Yes, absolutely. The exercises I do are influenced by her pedagogy. I think it's important, like she thought, to be relaxed, to have meditation, um, to almost hypnotize yourself, so that you can then visualize, and then wait, wait, wait. Till you see something, till you see it, till you hear voices, and then when you hear, write them, and then so it's documentation after that. Just, and you're not working so hard. I'm not inventing anything. I'm not creating dialogue out of the blue. They're talking, and it's great. It's liberating, and uh, um, and that was her her gift to me. I think her real gift. Um, she made me trust my uh, my view of the world, which is more surreal. Um, um, my my view of of, uh, of humanity. She made me trust that. Um, it has been such a pleasure um, uh, working with you and having this conversation with you. And um, before we break. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about um, what's on the horizon for you. Um, you also recently published uh, Retablos. Yes, I have a book called Retablos that came out in 2018. So it's three years now. Okay. And it's still selling. It's selling very well. Um, I'd like to write another, another book. I have an idea for a novel that I'd like to do. Um, but I can't get started on it until I take care of all my theater obligations of which Scene with Cranes is one. I have commissions also with San Francisco Playhouse, with uh, the Arena Stage, with, oh dear, La Jolla Playhouse. I've got a number of commissions waiting for me. 
and uh, I need to get cracking on them. And I have an, also um, an individual commercial project I'm working on, a musical with uh, that I'm writing with the young men uh, composers of Los Lobos, with Luis Perez and David Hidalgo, um, with Tony Tacconi at uh, the helm as director, and Brett Garfield as our chief producer. So that's uh, that's on the horizon. I've started writing a little bit of that. I've had two plays open recently, two productions. Um, Quijote Nuevo at the Roundhouse in Bethesda, and what's currently running at the San Diego Rep is Mother Road. And they did really well. And I'm just like really proud of them. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And I'm so excited to see even more of your work in the coming years. And uh, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you for having me on this podcast because um, you've been so gracious, such a gracious director uh, and a gracious friend to me and to the actors. Um, And uh, I'm very proud to be part of this. Mm. Beautiful, beautiful. All right. Okay, well, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you, Chihuahua. Appreciate it. Yeah. That was Octavio Solis and Chihuahua Young in conversation during rehearsals for the CalArts Center for New Performance production of Scene with Cranes, scheduled to premiere at Red Cat in Los Angeles in fall of 2022. This podcast was produced by CalArts Center for New Performance, the professional producing arm of California Institute of the Arts. Travis Preston, Artistic Director and Dean of CalArts School of Theater. Produced by George Lugg and Rory James Leach. Editing and sound engineering by Duncan Woodbury. Podcast theme music by Christian Amigo. Special thanks to Ravi Rajan, President of CalArts. For more information on this and other CNP podcasts, visit centerfornewperformance.org. You can find more episodes and subscribe for upcoming ones at centerfornewperformance.org slash podcast, or find us on your favorite source for podcasts, including iTunes and Spotify. Thank you for listening. Until next time.